0: Welcome to the Working Together Podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Morales, thinker, maker, doer behind Working Together, a burgeoning hub of can-do and know-how, inspired to explore who we are and how we can work together better. I'm fascinated by all the ingredients that you need to really make something happen, to really engage a system and the groups of people within it. And so, on this podcast, you'll hear a lot of stories from folks who've made interesting things happen. Their trials and tribulations, their reflections, their lessons learned, and the actionable advice that they have to share. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I did. In this episode, I talk with David Leach, Associate Professor of Creative Nonfiction and the Chair of the Department of Writing at the University of Victoria in British Columbia. Our conversation was recorded back in July 2016, a few months before the release of his new book, Chasing Utopia, The Future of the Kibbutz, in invited Israel. During our talk, we explored David's experiences on Kibbutz Shamir, where he volunteered in the late 1980s and where he returned in the late 2000s to discover that the entire communal movement in Israel and the nation itself had radically transformed. Our conversation touched on urban design, gender inequality, Zionism, tea kettles even, and the importance of being a good kibitzer, among a whole bunch of other things. So have a listen, and I hope you enjoy it. here, um, right off the bat is kind of a bit of your story, your backstory, because when you look at David Leach online, you see, uh, you know, an adventurer, you see a teacher of, of, of writing at UVic, um, and then also you see, uh, of course, the, the new book that you're going to be releasing in September, Chasing Utopia. The future of the kibbutz in a divided Israel um, uh, along with I'm sure other aspects of yourself that are also online too so maybe maybe if you could just kind of give me like a, 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 a an overview of your story there and how you've you know how you've kind of approached the different topic areas that you're interested in and
1: yeah I'll, I'll give you the the potted overview that kind of ties into the book so um, I grew up in uh, Ottawa in the deep suburbs of Ottawa, what I like to describe as the most middle-class neighborhood and most middle-class city and most middle-class country in the world, quintessential uh, suburban subdivision existence. And uh, I graduated from high school, ended up going to uh, Carleton, uh, in part because my high school girlfriend was in there, and then uh, had this breakup. She went tree planting in Alberta, ran away with an artist from Victoria as it happened. Uh, and I had this early crisis of conscience. What was I going to do with my life? I didn't want to go back to uh, university. I was actually studying biology at the time. Uh, I really wanted to be uh, a writer, but it didn't mm. seem like a meaningful career. And just... Completely randomly, I bumped into uh, a friend whose uh, own girlfriend had been backpacking through Europe and the Mediterranean and had stopped in Israel and had stayed on something called a kibbutz. And I asked, well, what's a kibbutz? And he explained it was this farm, a communal farm in which you could go and work uh, and stay for free. And they kept you there in exchange for your work. Uh, and this was in the late 80s, 1988, which was the height of the kibbutz Mm -hmm. uh, volunteering movement that uh, lots of people, backpackers, would kind of stop in Israel and work in a kibbutz for a while. So I just made the decision to take my uh, tuition money and instead of going back to school, I went to the Jewish Community Centre in uh, Ottawa, got an introductory letter, bought a one-way ticket, or an open ticket rather, to uh, Tel Aviv and ended up in israel and, and landed in the far north of the country i remember uh and i was i'm not jewish uh i knew nothing about the contemporary history of israel my knowledge of the country stopped somewhere at around uh 30 a.d with my uh, bible studies <laughs> and growing up catholic <laughs> Uh, so right. it was this complete blank slate yeah. on which the, the country and the kibbutz could impress itself upon me and hmm. I remember going into uh, Tel Aviv, the volunteer office and I'm asking where do you want to uh, work, And I thought, oh my goodness, this is. I'd left in a snowstorm in Ottawa and landed in a heat wave in Tel Aviv. And I thought, I, I can't survive this kind of a heat if it's this hot. So I didn't want to go south. And I decided to go up north and think and I pointed to this spot. And all I saw was like Syria and Lebanon. I realized I knew enough about kind of geopolitics to realize that this might not be the safest place. But um, ended on uh, a kibbutz, which is a, a kind of a, a communal settlement. Of, uh, radical equality, uh, the first one founded in around 1909, 1910, Kibbutz uh, Degania, to uh, settle pre-state Palestine and eventually uh, establish the borders on Israel, and the Kibbutz I ended up at...
0: So it wasn't the first one that was established that you ended up no. at? No, okay. a...
1: yeah, the one I okay. ended up uh, was established in the uh, early 40s, Kibbutz Shabir, Uh, And it was founded by these hardcore Romanian Marxists who wanted, like, the the toughest assignment out out the remote frontier. Uh, They would kind of settle the land that would, again, eventually become the border of uh, Israel. Uh, And at the time I was there, I didn't realize it, but the whole Khmut movement was was uh, shifting. There was about 270 of these different communities, so Mm -hmm. real kind of large... Almost an archipelago of of uh, communal settlements in which they shared everything. Everybody essentially got the same salary. You did. Uh, you worked for the kibbutz, uh, and you received a kind of a little uh, supplement back. Um, and and these were still going on at the time I was there. Uh, I left Israel. I spent. I was only going to spend a month or two there. I ended up spending eight months there. I kind of fell in love with the whole kind of. Uh, beauty of the landscape of Northern Gallery, hmm. the kind of uh, community setting of the of the kibbutz, even just kind of the architectural design of the place and how it was designed for hmm. kind of walking and like the, the kibbutz itself yeah, the and kibbutz the itself. surrounding environment exactly. and everything. And most of them were based on a similar kind of hmm. uh, blueprint that was that was really kind of designed to promote community, and where you they kind of kept the cars separate and nobody owned a car; they were all communally. Uh, shared, and, and there were walkways everywhere, and everything mm. kind of fed into a common green space and a large dining room that was real, a real hub of community activity. So I ended up staying there for, for eight months, uh, eventually, decided to come back uh, home. They did offer me like a more of a full time job to be the lifeguard at the <laughs> swimming pool, but I'd been a lifeguard back home, and I decided, well, you know, I need to go back to school and, and kind of get a life. I always thought I'd go back to Israel, but as it happened, uh, you know, I, I fell into the routines of, of school and then grad school. And then I, I actually yeah, lived overseas again in the Czech Republic for a while and uh, became a teacher and then a journalist and then uh, a teacher uh, again. And it was only about 20, 22 years later that I really wondered... Uh, what had happened to Shamir, I hadn't really kept in touch with a lot of people. This was kind of pre-internet era, mm. pre-Facebook. Was, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you wrote postcards, but eventually everybody moved around and lost track of each other. So uh, around 2004, 2005, we kind of realized, oh, I should kind of check in on the kibbutz and, and uh, googled kibbutz Shamir. And the first image to come up was a, in a pair of kibbutzniks at the NASDAQ Stock Exchange, uh, that the factory where it was worked had gone public. Uh, the kibbutz was now uh, a kibbutz of millionaires. And I also learned that it had gone through something called privatization and was no longer uh. this, this socialist commune of mm-hmm. absolute equals. And as a writer, I thought, hmm. Hmm. that's an interesting yeah. change <laughs> um, Israel was an interesting country to begin with but it just uh, gave me an excuse to, to head back right. and learn more one about what happened at the, the community where I live but also what happened to this whole utopian ideal of, of the kibbutz
0: and so which, which year was this when you went back
1: uh, I went back uh, for the first time in two thousand and nine, and just mm. coincidentally, yeah, the, the whole Kibbutz movement was about to celebrate its hundredth anniversary, its centenary in two thousand and ten. So I thought, oh, I'll go back, maybe do an, a magazine article or a book, and I'll have it all ready for two thousand and ten. Well, I got there, and I realized it was a much more kind of uh, rich and complicated mm. story mm-hmm. uh, that was that was playing out. That on the one hand, there was communities like. Uh, Shamir that had privatized and yet had become very, very successful uh, as a capitalist enterprise. And there was others where that were on the verge of bankruptcy just before I was heading out. There was a shooting on a kibbutz because uh, a man who had lived there for years, who had always had a job there... Um, uh, had gone to see the the community manager. They had hired outsiders to help manage the community, and was told that well, no, now his salary was going to be cut because his job wasn't as important. He just kind of lost it and and shot this person and then shot himself. Wow. Uh, so there was this kind of crisis mm. uh, happening on these these uh, utopian communities that. Mm-hmm. Was, uh, were were made to be equal and now no longer were. We we're kind of giving way to the greater forces of capitalism.
0: Interesting. Which also yeah.
1: reflected what was happening or had been happening in Israel for years and years. It was a country built around these kind of labor ideals, cooperative ideals, and then over the last 20 years or so has become like a hyper-capitalist startup nation, they, they uh, call it, with a lot of haves and have-nots.
0: Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Startup Nation because I was actually looking at uh at a I think it was somebody's blog or something on Medium, uh called Startup Nation and it was it was uh it was some interesting work in there and then I realized, oh, this is actually all in Israel. All the all these all these folks writing are are from Israel talking about their startup work. So yeah, that's interesting. I think that um you know, one of the things that uh that I'm hearing is that basically you you went there in your idealistic youth, so to speak, and had this had this kind of experience of communal living and and uh, you know got to really uh, uh, you know experience this this uh, this fundamental principle that seems to be a part of the kibbutz in terms of its classic rendition, I guess, which is uh, radical equality. Do you want to maybe like talk a little bit more about what that experience of radical equality was like when you were coming there you said it was in the heyday of kibbutz volunteerism and and i know that in 89 according to wikipedia <laughs> it was, that was the high point in terms of the the number of uh folks who are living on on kibbutz and then after that, it's been slowly declining. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what was that like when you were there? Were you? Did it feel like things were beginning to kind of come apart a little bit at the seams? Or was it very much still actively a communal kind of concept?
1: That's an excellent question. Uh, I was 20 years old at the time. I was, uh, as I mentioned, almost this kind of complete blank slate in the sense that I wasn't especially uh, political. <clears throat> and for years, I toted around two journals that I had kept uh, of my experiences there. I hadn't read them for years, and then I decided to uh, write the book, and I went back. I was like, I'll have a look at there. I'm sure they're filled with kind of like subtle (laughs) political observations (laughs) and and kind of uh, cultural notes and and things like that. Lots of stuff for the book. Exactly. (laughs) Of course, what it was filled with was kind of like the moanings of a 20-year-old who was drinking too much and kind of uh, uh, chasing after other volunteers or what. Interspersed with little kind of yes, bits yes. and pieces. And I was really lucky in the sense that the kibbutz I um, was living on, Shamir, Shemir, uh, yeah. Yeah, was part of the uh, artsy movement, which was the, the furthest left of, of the different uh, the, kibbutz the, federation. The artsy movement. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. A-R-T-S-I? A-R-T-Z-I is how right. it's usually transliterated. Mm. So, the, yeah, a, a very kind of strong Marxist uh, youth movement had, had founded it. And they were uh, very much to the, the left of the Israeli mainstream. It always had been. Uh, in their early days, they actually kind of imagined Israel as this binational state in which um, Jews and Palestinians would kind of live as mm-hmm. uh, equals. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. and, they, and, and so they were very interested in educating us. So we had Hebrew lessons. It took us all around the country. They exposed us to some of the political uh, debates. We went to Gavata Viva, which is a, um, a left-wing educational kind of senator uh, that does a lot of work uh, to kind of bring together Palestinians and, and Jews uh, in the country for educational seminars. So in that sense, despite my kind of uh, volunteer haze of how one volunteer coordinator described it as like hordes of North Americans and Europeans looking for sun, sand, and sex <laughs> in Israel. There was these kind of intimations of of uh, something else is going on here, mm. and also at the time, eighty-eight, eighty-nine was the height of the first Intifada, the kind of pal- the first mm-hmm. Palestinian uprising, which was held. Happening elsewhere in the country, but it was impossible to ignore in the headlines, and I was mm-hmm. kind of a, a pretty uh, obsessive news reader as well, so aware of just kind of the complexity of the situation that we were in. And again, the Kibbutzniks where we lived were quite open about it. Uh, when I first got there, the volunteer leader said, "Yeah, they're, they're going to have to trade land for peace uh, uh, eventually. That, that, mm-hmm. that we, we cannot kind of continue down this." Uh, So that was very kind of eye-opening. And I think it when I returned to kind of Canada and uh, Israel remains in the headlines uh, year after year, I always kind of looked back on that time and realized that I got a greater sense of the complexity of Mm. of the country and the conflict. And that's what the book deals with in part is that uh, Israel... The Israel kind of Palestinian debate is often very black and white. Who you choose, or which side you choose, says who you are politically. Yes, yeah. And you kind of spend any time there, and especially any time in a kibbutz, uh, which is this kind of very left-wing community, you realize that it's not as simple as it might seem from the outside. And, and that's what kind of fascinated me about both the kibbutz in Israel, that Israel itself is a utopian project. It was kind of mm. essentially created out of a utopian uh, novel by Theodor Herzl. I mean, he, he wrote a novel, uh, The Old New Land, to imagine a homeland for the Jews. And it became, in some ways, sort of the inspiration, if not the template, for a future state in Israel. Uh, the the kibbutz themselves these are utopian ideas mm-hmm. utopian projects kind of borrow from the ideas of different people in which they tried to kind of implement uh, these principles of of kind of solidarity and and they really believed not just that they were kind of creating these small communities but by creating these small communities they would actually change the homo, uh, the, the human species into what it was sometimes described as homo kibbutznik or the, the new mm-hmm. jew somebody who would be less selfish and more altruistic mm-hmm. more cooperative and they would be educated in this way and israel would be created and would be this way and that they would inspire the entire world to essentially mm-hmm. live like a, a, a giant kibbutz didn't happen, but it was like this fascinating Mm -hmm. noble ideal and ultimately the longest-lived kind of experiment in secular communal living. Because if you look at uh, communes, secular communes, don't have a very long lifespan for the most part. Okay, interesting. Uh, Religious groups, um, when you have that kind of glue Mm -hmm. of religion holding together a, a communal... Group they tend to kind of survive for longer. But here was an example of, for the most part, a radically secular. In some cases, for instance, a Maccabees uh, and its movement, absolutely anti-religious mm-hmm. um, uh, group of people who, for a hundred years or nearly a hundred years in some cases, managed to live uh, as as full equals in in terms of that kind of radical. There's charity. there's
0: so many fascinating threads in the last. A uh, little bit that you spoke to there. I mean, okay. First of all, Theodore Herzl and and his book. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So that was that was obviously written in the 1800s. This yeah, this book. absolutely. And then therefore, yeah.
1: the, Herzl the father of mm. of uh, Zionism. Uh, and yeah, and he wrote kind of the manifestos and also kind of within novel, just imagining what mm. uh, a Jewish homeland might be and might look like. And then spent. Uh, kind of years lobbying. he died long before it was uh, the founding of the state of israel but he is that kind of founding father and it's interesting that uh, israel itself begins in this utopian uh, vision of uh, a better society another place for the jews who were kind of uh, persecuted in in eastern and central europe Mm -hmm. at the time so yeah israel itself begins as this utopian project now a lot of people look at it and think it's kind of something very different from that
0: how does that make you feel coming from a literary writerly background that you know you were basically immersed within the enactment of an idea that came from a novel
1: Oh, it's and, and, and to be fair, they, they didn't necessarily take a lot of the specifics. Of oh, I'm sure. I'm but sure but, but there just, were. just the, the yeah, absolutely kind of fascinating. And I've long had an interest in in the literature of utopias and, and mm. dystopias, and I think I talk about it a little bit in the book that I think it's almost innate. In the human species, you mean? You look at kind of uh, uh, children and the, the the this kind of natural world building that we have, mm-hmm. and how we like to kind of experiment and imagine uh, different worlds. But then to actually kind of see people take that step mm-hmm. to make it real—to say, okay, well, this is the path that our entire people have been living for centuries, if not millennia, but we're gonna choose a different path. Mm-hmm. And we're gonna actually take the concrete steps and make it happen. Mm-hmm. And and have this kind of complete ideological and, and kinda of spiritual and geographical break from the kind of the pathway that, that our people had gone for generations
0: and generations. And it's it's fascinating too when you um you know when you look at what they were doing when they were first establishing, it's it's very much uh a pioneer settlement story, right? Uh But instead of, um, you know, uh, the one that we're familiar with in the Western world of of Canada and the United States of, you know, some government promising free land, uh, come on over and, you know, see what you can make of it. Um, And having these kind of individual almost nuclear families um, having to deal with uh, settling land in a very physical, uh, uh, you know, cut off from... Uh, urban center like it's it's a it's a totally different uh different uh cultural history there of settlement and then in in this uh in this instance you have this communal uh, history of settlement and and so much of it is is uh you know it's it, it was basically guys and and gals rolling up their sleeves and uh reclaiming wetlands exactly uh you know reclaiming these spaces that um, you know, they essentially thought it would be, you know, given to them at at a low cost and and, and uh and of benefit to everybody, right? You know, like it, it would be it would be beneficial for us to move here and and reclaim and, and settle this space because it would serve the communities around it to have this wetland transformed. And that's like that seems to be a lot of the narrative of um of the early kibbutz movement. And You know, any everything that you're talking about here too, as well. I mean, it's in line with so many different strands of, I don't know what you'd call it. Maybe like noble modernism. Uh, You know, this this nobility of of some you know grand idea that we will be the change um, uh, that then changes the world, so to speak. Oh, absolutely. Uh, It's the same, and my wife she studies a lot of Montessori stuff, and it's the same there too. That's this notion that if we start with the children when they're early and we, and we, you know, educate them differently, then we can change the world through, through that single kind of, Point of contact.
1: And, and the kibbutz was absolutely kind of uh, about, particularly, that philosophy of childhood education. And it might have been kind of like a marginal interest or certainly a historical uh, interest in, in terms of its uh, importance in helping found Israel. But as a social experiment, what always stands out for it is its communal child rearing. Mm-hmm. The fact that for decades uh, the children were kind of separated from their parents and raised as almost like a little mini uh, group or a little mini kibbutz on their own with with nannies or what they call uh as well, in which they were kind of educated around these kibbutz values and would see their parents for maybe a couple of hours at dinner and then go back and, and kind of sleep with this. And originally that was, that was just uh, out of necessity. I mean, the women needed to work in the fields as well. So hmm. it's like... Uh, and they didn't have a lot of kind of space or buildings so let's have a central building to raise the kids but then it got integrated into their actual philosophy Mm -hmm. and ideology and virtually every kind of kibbutz did that and and, and had communal uh, child rearing and it was an essential kind of quality and then you had like Droves of psychologists and so sociologists landed kibbutzes to kind of see mm-hmm. uh, what was happening. How was this affecting the kids? Were they becoming kind of these new model citizens or were they kind of getting these psychological disorders? And mm-hmm. of course, you can find evidence on either a side of it. And, and a lot of people kind of point to that kind of break, um, which happened at least as far back as the 80s and even before then. Uh, where the kibbutzes decided, no, we want our kids to kind of sleep at home now as that mm. kind of break from that, that hardcore idealism of the the communal movement. But they still... Uh, within that had this incredible kind of educational uh, system, like a kibbutz education system that was the envy uh, of the nation because hmm. they put uh, this emphasis on kind of raising children. Uh, and even the, the pioneers themselves saw themselves as the compost for the future. They would kind of settle oh. and, and kind of sacrifice themselves for the next uh, generation. Huh. Uh, yeah, children of the dream is how Bruno uh, Bettelheim described kind of the children yes, of the kibbutz yeah. raised under this uh, system
0: of, of yeah, and he you know his his uh, I mean one of the things that you get out of his work from what I understand it is that um, you know private property has a relationship to uh, private emotions in a sense and you know one of his arguments I guess that came out of his study was that if you're looking at um, you know the kibbutz and you're looking at this lack of private property then you're looking at this lack of private emotions and you have this different kind of starting point for social relations entirely and you know i think obviously right from an outsider's perspective people look at that and they wonder well you know what what is that good or or is that yeah. bad or and i think you know and this this is this comes back to a lot of the themes that i that i work through with working together and and the stuff that we do Uh, on that website, and the blog, and the podcasts, and whatnot, is, um, you know, basically just trying to kind of defamiliarize social relations, and understand that, you know, you can get from a utopian idea described in a novel, to some concrete experiments with that, uh, and then to an entirely different way of relating to one another, right, that, that kind of Transforms the conditions of possibility for a group of people to come together. Now, in this case, however, that is not where the story ends, right? Like, because we go, we go to this pinnacle moment in the in the late eighties. Yeah,
1: and some people would argue, and I think that the change was happening even like a decade or, or earlier before then. That the kind of real break is nineteen seventy seven mm-hmm. when the right wing Likud party takes takes uh, over. Uh, political power in Israel and suddenly the kibbutz movement is kind of cut off from like the, oh, yeah. the, mm-hmm. the kind of politics there. And then in the 80s there's this massive, early 80s there's this massive economic crisis in Israel with like 500% hyperinflation and everybody goes in debt, including the, the, the kibbutzes. Mm-hmm. And suddenly they're they're a bit ideologically adrift and and in debt as well mm-hmm. I mean, they're they're kind of almost coasting on fumes when I uh, get there and then hit this crisis uh, of the '90s. That is a combination mm-hmm. of things. Sociologists sociologists have kind of told me that yeah, there's. One, you've, you're you're moving into the second and even third generation, and they just don't have that same kind of ideological mm-hmm. drive yeah. uh, as as their grandparents did. They're not kind of hardcore Marxists or or uh, socialists. They want to kind of get a job and and kind of survive in in modern mm-hmm. Israel. You've got like this economic crisis. These these were largely agricultural communities that slowly had to industrialize, and suddenly they're in deep. The debt you've got a whole generation kind of leaving the kibbutz as well and wanting to kind of travel the world so it's a very much an aging population mm-hmm. uh as well and you've got the whole kind of uh country shifting um rightwards in many ways as mm-hmm. well and kind of focusing more on the occupied territories and the religious settlers there. So the, the the kibbutzniks are no longer at the vanguard of the country. So there's a yeah a loss of vision. Uh, as as well, and yet these communities are still there. They, they've still been built. People are still living in them, and that is one of the interesting kind of uh, challenges. And one of the uh, an architectural uh, architect in Israel told me who studied like uh, the utopias. Mm-hmm. He said, "Well, utopia as an idea is always this fixed thing. It's like this perfect place." And because it's perfect, it doesn't change. But that's not how we live. We're constantly mm, changing. Right. Real communities yes. have to evolve. So like a living utopia, how do you create that? Isn't it a contradiction in terms? If mm. it's perfect place, has to figure out how to change. And that was always kind of the, the challenge of the kibbutz. But what made it interesting is they had this kind of form of de- direct democracy, the General Assembly, in which everybody could go and debate and everybody's vote counted, and it was 50% plus one, for better or worse, uh, on how they would kind of evolve. So they were always evolving as as communities, and they were evolving democratically mm-hmm. rather than from the top down. But suddenly, especially in the 80s and then in the 90s, there was just kind of multiple crises and... and uh, uh, Um, not knowing how to deal with it. And then that became the decommunalization movement or the privatization Mm -hmm. movement or what they describe in Hebrew as shenui, the change, where they kind of had Mm. to let go of some of these kind of core principles yeah. yeah and most explicitly the fact that everybody got paid the same that everybody's work was valued in the same way economically so the the director of the kibbutz got paid the same as a person who peeled potatoes mm-hmm. and in fact when the head of the kibbutz finished his term often the first job he or she had to do was to go back in the kitchen and peel potatoes just to remind you of where you came from mm-hmm. all that was gone right and that's happened at about I think seventy five to eighty percent of kibbutzes now have gone through this process of privatization and decommunalization.
0: And so, in in your book and in the in the work that you did, uh, you know, writing the book, did you kind of explore what folks thought of this? You know, because yeah. you go from the situation where. You know, that, that radical equality and that uh, no-wage differential aspect where there's a common treasury and all of this stuff, you go from that to another system. I'm sure that it's also quite differentiated between communities in terms of how they've transitioned. Some are maybe, well, as we know, some have gone full private, you know, yeah. where some individual members... Some have dissolved yeah. and
1: just become kind of gated communities. Right. Uh, as well, some have found a balance... Uh, Shamir, Shamir is private, but it's got this a little uh, almost like a welfare sa- safety net so people don't have to pay too much mm. for uh, health care and things like that. Mm. Uh, but they're underwritten by fat dividends from their very successful optical uh, factory as, mm. as well. Uh, so, yeah, the first half of the book explores both the history of this idea and, and the kibbutz and, and the effects of privatization, and how they played out in different ways. Some mm-hmm. people say this is a wonderful thing because it's given people back its freedom. A lot of, kind of kibbutz like, say, well, they, they've kind of lost something essential there that, yes, you get this economic freedom. Uh, But you lose that sense of community that was at the core Mm -hmm. of the kibbutz. And in fact, the kibbutz numbers are rising for the first time in years Mm. because some people are moving out of the city from the isolation of the lonely crowd. And and Israel is a very densely packed country Mm -hmm. to come. go to these country communities, most of them in, in rural environments, many of them in the range of missiles from Lebanon or Gaza. So it's 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 uh, an interesting kind of suburban escape, as it mm. were, um, but because there is a greater sense of community. You can have a house, and mm. there's a swimming pool, and you, you get to know your neighbors. So it has those almost traditional... Uh, Values And that's something that I explored in the book and then uh, I kind of talked about in various talks that even though this kind of grand utopian socialist ideal, we're going to change the world Mm -hmm. uh, plan didn't work out, there's still a lot of really interesting lessons from the whole experiment of the kibbutz movement because he spent so long thinking as a large group about how the various decisions they made in their community either or impacted their community and their sense of community in negative or positive uh, ways. And one of the most famous ones is the, the debate about the tea kettle, the great tea kettle debates that I guess <laughs> did happen in the 50s or even early 60s, where uh, somebody on a kibbutz wanted their own tea kettle in their uh, apartment. Well, that sounds fine, doesn't it? Well, no, they had to kind of debate it in the general assembly because if Shlomo had a tea kettle, well, then he wasn't going to the, the kitchen or he wasn't going to kind of mm-hmm. the, yeah. the coffee house where everybody else was and to have his tea and he wasn't bumping into his neighbors. He wasn't talking to them and you're losing those kind mm-hmm. of sense of, of connections. The same debate happened with private telephones rather than communal telephones. The same thing happened with uh, TVs. They used to all watch the TV together, a single station in in the dining room hmm. and like the more you kind of remove these communal activities into the private space, the less you uh, uh you had that sense of community connection. interesting
0: so they were they were actively working through um this question of h- how much private space should be you know kind of allowed, how much public space should be encouraged yeah all of this, and how it will impact the community's ability to be a community basically right I remember uh, looking at something about the the tea kettle when I was uh, kind of preparing for our talk, and I was oh, wow, that's that's fascinating. And I thought about it in relationship to a lot of the kind of lines of thinking that you now see in um, in social innovation circles around co-housing, right? Yeah. Like there's some there's some uh, amazing examples of co-housing projects all around the world. Uh, but it seems like there's a lot of lessons here that, uh, that you can get from the kibbutz in those, in those, uh, conversations. I think a lot of co-housing though, too, is, you know, for better or worse, it seems like it's definitely more focused on just domestic life. Yes. Like there's mm-hmm. less of, um, there's less of this imperative to kind of produce economic, um, you know, output, I guess, or like you're, you're not trying to produce, uh, a, uh, you know, farmed products with a co-housing unit necessarily, or in some cases with some of these kibbutz, uh, like industrial products. So maybe on that point, like, how did we get from, you know, this this notion of the kibbutz, which I think a lot of people, when they first hear the term kibbutz, they think of, oh, it's, it's a communal farm yeah. in Israel. That's like the bare bones, <laughs> high level understanding of it. How do we get from that to where we are now with uh, with some of these kibbutz going public and 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 that's an interesting you know, part of the debate. That's and a,
1: and this is an interesting part of the debate <clears throat> because part of the kind of ideology of the early kibbutz, uh, especially Aaron David Gordon's um, kind of philosophy of reclaiming the land, this notion that the Jewish people. Uh, during their exile, uh, especially in Europe, uh, had been disconnected from the from land and working with their hands, and that the, the kibbutz movement and the promise of Israel was this return to the land, which was kind of a spiritual mm-hmm. Uh, quasi-spiritual return as well. So working the land was very, very uh, important, both kind of logistically to kind of uh, feed a new nation and and to kind of found these settlements, but it had a a kind of quasi-secular spiritual quality to it as well. Uh, And then when they realized they, they were getting bigger. And there was a lot of debate about size and scale. Mm. Uh, for instance, Ganya, mm-hmm. the first kibbutz, reached a certain size, and they decided to split in two. Because sort of once you couldn't have a meeting around a large dining room table, they figured, well, this isn't going to work. We've all got to be able to kind of connect in a meaningful way. Let's split in half, and we'll just have smaller, what they called kfuzas, uh rather than uh, kibbutzas and um, They did that and they almost thought where well, they would kind of just franchise it. There was Daganya A, Daganya B, it kind of stopped at, at that. <laughs> but then another stream of kibbutzes decided, no, we've got to grow big if we're going to found a country. And those were the ones that that uh, began to industrialize. They oh, wanted okay. to kind of branch out and they needed to kind of diversify. Uh, so they went into metalworks and eventually plastic factories. And you've got some that create chocolates. And um, most famously, the Kibbutz Hagashrim made. Millions uh, when they were near bankruptcy, and one of the kibbutzniks got them to gamble on creating the epilator to remove hair from women's legs, and they they made millions from that as well. So, yeah, you suddenly, and a lot of people, um, or certain sociologists say that also becomes uh, the division of labor in the kibbutz where you suddenly have these experts these engineers right. these managers who mm-hmm. have to run the businesses and they become separate from everybody else where you could get assigned anywhere in the kibbutz one day you could be working in the the fields one day you could be working dishes well they were saying well no we need kind of business managers running the this company we need kind of shop floor managers running this. We mm-hmm. can't be rotating mm-hmm. people around. We need this technocratic expertise. Right. There you have that mm. division which happens in the 50s and the sixties. On Mike Butts, it's fascinating that they actually founded the optical factory that eventually made the millions and millions, in part as a money-losing venture, because the the founding generation had reached this age where they couldn't work in the fields anymore. Uh, but they wanted to feel like they hmm. were contributing. So this gave them a chance to have some kind of meaningful labor because it was really felt uh, that labor was an important part of your identity, that, mm-hmm. that uh, you didn't want to get kind of pushed out of uh, contributing to the community.
0: So many different factors right that lead to the transition from kibbutz into the renewed kibbutz movement, I guess if you want to even call it a movement right. it's more like a, a cause and effect relationship it seems between all these crises that you mentioned earlier, like I also know there's the the gender equality issues that um you know that that basically they started out focusing on equality. And trying to make that a reality for men and women. Uh, this is part of the story behind the, the children's um, uh, 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 houses. And then over the years, women start to want to return back to more kind of domestic labor, and they or get pushed
1: into the domestic labor. There's a mm, debate around that as really, well. Yeah, whether it was oh, yeah, choice or we, need, or we need somebody to run the children's house. Uh, Well, that's Mm -hmm. kind of women's work. So yeah, there there is this, the gap between the vision of absolute equality and the actual reality of absolute equality was always something that they struggled with, but they Mm -hmm. were conscious of it. I mean, every uh, every female member had a a vote that weighed the same as every male member right from the the Mm -hmm. get-go. But yeah, eventually you start to have this division of labor that becomes gendered Mm -hmm. as well.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and that in turn kind of ripples out in different ways too, right? Like you have different, uh, marital relations, uh, you know, where suddenly marriage becomes an actual thing where the, where before it was, it was, there was less fanfare around that. Yeah, and, then and it,
1: in fact, they often talked about the problem of the family, the mm, problem mm-hmm. of the nuclear family, and how that would uh, affect community if, you, if uh, the family was focused inward on husband and wife and kids mm-hmm. rather than focused outward. And, and that was part of the reason for the children's house as well. If, it freed women from child care. They could participate in the community. They could participate in the politics. They pr- could uh, have time with their friends and mm-hmm. and, and uh, husband and and do other activities as well. But yeah, they were constantly trying to kind of solve the problem of, of the nuclear family. Interesting, yeah. And now you look at, I uh, visit a what's like Shamir, and it's really like a celebration of that nuclear uh, family that they mm. have kind of returned to almost this... Um, stereotypical 1950s North American kind of suburban ideal of the... the uh, Interesting. And is uh, that
0: is that because they feel like they're, um, you know... Is it because there's new people who've come in who have that background and so therefore can just do it? Or is it actually people who were there before and just kind of decided to try on this other I think it's a bit of both
1: certainly you you, most of the kibbutz have had created these kind of subdivisions to attract new people and Mm -hmm. kind of make money from their property and then you've got it's you're entering the third and the fourth generation and they've just kind of inherited these kind of values from around interesting yeah Yeah. the, the values from outside the world have kind of Coming to the kibbutz, we at the same time the kibbutz has managed to hold on to some of its its own values about the importance of, of community. Hmm. And you see it again in the, the kind of architectural spaces that remain. And uh, and where you see the biggest changes on kibbutz is if, if they've shut down their dining hall or not, or whether they still have Interesting. Communal meals there. Right. That was so core to their ethos of breaking bread together three times a day
0: maybe maybe elaborate a little bit more on some other things like that because that seems pretty fundamental right in terms of your you know what you see in in terms of the shifts that happening yes you can have these different forms of production um and it seems like in some cases they're still living communally even though they're now producing industrial products and plastics and things like this but something like that is uh, is pretty fundamental, and um, you know what, what else? What else is there like that in terms of taking it away? Completely transforms the dynamic, and I can really see how taking away the kitchen would be almost like a linchpin, and that says something I think interesting about what a kitchen is.
1: Oh, absolutely, and it was more than just the kitchen because the dining hall was always this uh, multi-purpose. Mm -hmm. hub in the kibbutz. It was a place where they... Uh, they debated topics, it was a place where they voted, it was a place where they met and had meals every day, and you kind of gossiped, and you saw who was sitting with who or whatnot, mm. and you were very kind of exposed. It was a place where they had public celebrations, and they had weddings, and they had kind of created these secular versions of the of like, uh, harvest festivals and other religious festivals, where they kind of gathered together and performed as well. It was this kind of intensely communal space and is that kind of deteriorated with privatization first with uh, often the the um uh, the dining room was turned over to a private interest who needed to uh, kind of mm. make money from it and suddenly food wasn't free but there was a small charge and maybe it was subsidized huh. and then people started like oh well, I'm just going to eat in my own room rather right. than, and then uh, at that point yeah you weren't seeing your uh, your neighbors at meal and that suddenly it wasn't profitable so we're only going to serve lunch rather than breakfast and meals and suddenly they just shut it down entirely and let people kind of eat in their rooms and there was that real kind of law of, of community that was at the, at the core uh, at the hub of, of the dining hall mm.
0: and there's the space now probably filled with folded up ping pong tables exactly <laughs> or it's been renewed <laughs> I mean, in different ways yeah. the
1: Kibbutz Gatan is an interesting place where they've created this this wonderful dance academy this international oh, dance mm. company so they use that as a studio uh, now, or re, uh, yeah, yeah. rehearsal space. But the other thing I did in the second half of the book is kind of look at uh, how this utopian spirit, which seems to have diminished in the traditional kibbutz, is kind mm-hmm. of being picked up or changed elsewhere in Israel in, and in Palestine. And there is a, a bit of a resurgence. Um, with these urban communes and and urban kibbutzes have existed only there's only a handful in Israel for 30 years or so but mm. a number of of the children of the kibbutz realized well if we're really going to change our country let alone the world it's not going to happen way out here in the countryside right. on the border that the real challenges with kind of poverty. And racism and education uh, and these major social issues are happening in the cities. Absolutely. A a number of them created communes, again, with full uh, equality, uh, but they weren't going to be farmers and they weren't going to be industrialists. Mm. They were going to be social activists and social workers and educators and still kind of live that communal ideal. So there's some really interesting ones in Jerusalem, also in Starot, which is right on the border of Gaza. And now a whole kind of series of much um, uh, smaller ones, often just in uh, apartment buildings all over the, the country where there's this kind of revitalization, the renaissance of Uh, the spirit of the original pioneers a lot of actually young jewish emigres from north america or britain coming in Hmm. uh, as well and involved in the the social justice movement in israel which is admittedly kind of uh a much diminished voice in the in the public sphere
0: Mm -hmm. so would you say then that some of these urban kibbutzes then that that have sprung up they're now Um, They're coming back to some of these uh, tougher conversations around Arab and Israeli cooperation in the region, but trying to host space for that conversation to occur in a serious way
1: yeah uh, some of them are some of them are more focused on kind of jewish israeli right uh issues i mean there's there's a deep divide between ashkenazi jews of european background and mizrahi jews of kind of mediterranean and mm. arabic background and, and kind of a certain level of racism and and kind of poverty on one hand and uh, uh elitism on the other that they they try and address uh but yeah there's an, a number of really interesting communities um and not just the, the urban uh, communes, but uh, coexistence uh, communities. The the one that's most fascinating is Neve Shalom Wacha Al-Salam, which is the oasis of, of peace, hmm. right, built right in the, the green line. And I guess it's been around for at least uh, 30, uh, more hmm. than 30 years now. But it was more inspired by the quotes. is isn't fully communal, but kind of based around this idea of, of having half of the members be Jewish, and half of the members be Palestinians, either um, mm. um, Muslims or Christians, and living together and creating a school for peace, a bilingual mm-hmm. school that people could get and in, like, and and creating the safe space to have these difficult conversations. And there's another one called Nesanim, which was actually founded as a Christian kibbutz, by Dutch and Swiss uh, volunteers who uh, of, of Christian background who felt this deep guilt after the Holocaust and were wondering what could they do to repair relations mm. with, with the Jews. So they created this community to kind of uh, work together, but now... Looking for a new mission, they've actually opened it up to to uh, be a community where where Palestinians and, and Jews can live and work That's together amazing. around these peace uh, initiatives. So again, all of these were mm-hmm. inspired by the original vision of the kibbutz. Many of them have that the the built environment of of the kibbutz to kind of encourage uh, community.
0: So maybe maybe say a little bit more about this built environment. Okay. You've mentioned it a few times now. I feel like it's a red thread that's running through your book, but it's also running through your interest in the kibbutz and in the region. And There's yeah. something going on here for you with architecture and power and community and all these things. Maybe you could touch on that a little bit or riff on it. However.
1: Sure, absolutely. No, I'd love to. And that's, I think, what I... When I returned to the kibbutz, I was immediately struck by and I realized what had affected me most, having kind of grown up in, again, sort of the deep suburbs of of Ottawa, which was, it was like a wonderful childhood to kind of explore and safe and all of that. Uh, But I remember kind of (laughs) coming back from Kibbutz Shamir, in which you couldn't like walk for 30 seconds with bumping into somebody having a conversation Mm -hmm. and there was all of these spaces, whether it was a sports hall or which was used for movies or, or sports or the swimming Mm -hmm. pool or the pub or the dining room or the grocery store, all of these places where you constantly bumping into other people and, and kind of uh, getting yourself knit within the community. Come back home to uh, my parents' house in, uh, Suburban Ottawa. Uh, I'm I'm home, uh, getting ready to head back to school. Uh, during the day, it's like a neutron bomb's gone off. There's nobody there. Mm-hmm. Kids are in school or off at of camps. Everybody's kind of driven into the the city. Uh, there's no shops or anything, uh, and I remember kind of walking through, seeing nobody, as I kind of walked around the neighborhood and crossing somebody's kind of corner of lawn and hearing this shout from behind, behind a screen door, like, get off the grass! That was my one kind of mm. moment of kind of human <laughs> connection. I realized, oh, something's wrong here. Oh, and a man. lot of it has to do with this built environment, mm. how this these kind of neighborhoods had been set up. Almost to, 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 so your house really kind of faces backward into your yard. Mm -hmm. Everything's designed for, for cars and for the cars to get around and and not for pedestrians. And it was the exact opposite, I realized, of what I had experienced on the kibbutz Mm -hmm. and that I was all nostalgic for. And and for years was kind of nostalgic for, even though I didn't uh, realize it, that very much that human scale, um... Community where everything was kind of built to accommodate, uh, people walking to different places where they could be together.
0: Hmm. Uh,
1: and they were very conscious of that, that the the dining hall, that the hub could not be more than 10 minutes walk from anybody's house mm-hmm. because that might mean they wouldn't come to, yeah. to meetings, but also that, uh, mm-hmm. it, and they were very influenced, um, uh, by the whole Garden City movement, right. the kind of notion mm-hmm. of, of integrating green space uh, and and communal facilities, but also workspaces as well. So where there was a, a hemisphere or a half of the kibbutz where you have all the work places. So you could go to walk to work and then walk mm-hmm. back to lunch and then walk over to uh, have a swim and, and bump into so-and-so and have a drink. Uh, and it, uh, it really influenced how i kind of came back to north america and sort of saw the world through those eyes and thought well why not why not here Mm -hmm. and you you see it in these ideas around new urbanism
0: Mm -hmm. and Mm
1: -hmm. uh, um, active transportation uh, but how do you kind of impose that vision on an urban infrastructure that for like 50 years has been devoted to getting cars to move around more Mm -hmm. quickly
0: yeah. Uh a lot of this a lot of this stuff that you realized about space um you know how how we inhabit it as a community. I mean, I think I think for tons of people living in North America and in any kind of urban setting that's been developed um you know after after the Second World War basically around the automobile like, so many people have this deep sense of, you know, longing for a, like, a, I guess what you would call a human scale experience of neighborhood, of community, of, of household, and all this. Um, so what kind of, what kind of lessons do you feel there are, if any, from, you know, from what you studied and saw in the kibbutz, and 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 what we can do in our urban communities, and in our suburban communities today that seem so um cut off from one another in in many respects and distanced from one another and then on the other hand um the whole history of the kibbutz movement is one of um it's, it's a story of migration right it's a story of settlement um it's a story of some people welcoming others and some people not and the kind of tensions that, that happen around that. And so that would be the, the other kind of group of lessons that I think is really, you know, as far as the crises with, with refugees and, and migrants and stuff today, and the, you know, the use of that issue by right-wing politicians to kind of garner support and fear and all of this stuff. You know, I'm wondering what kind of lessons we can take from from the kibbutz movement on that front
1: those are excellent questions Uh, I don't know if I've got uh, the one answer but they've they've certainly been questions that have occupied uh, my imagination for years Mm -hmm. and really kind of seeded by my experiences in in the kibbutz and then kind of revived by uh, the visits uh, to different kibbutzim and talking to kind of the people uh, about uh, there, people who've lived in these communities for years, mm-hmm. for kind of decades, who have lived communally, which is uh, amazing. Mm-hmm. Obviously, something that I've uh, never done. Uh, so, in terms of the built environment, one of the things that kind of struck me, and I sometimes get this that people get confused between the words kibbutz and kibbutz. And they're actually unrelated mm. etymologically in kibbutz. It means a gathering in Hebrew and it came to be settlements. Kibbutz is actually an old Yiddish word that I think originally meant to be like an annoying observer in a card game. And, but it really means to... Uh, to it, ultimately, it's become less navigative and it's more about conversation. But I think the, the lesson I realized is that to be a good kibbutznik, you had to be a good kibitzer. And hmm. to be a good member of community, you have to have build these kind of conversational connections between your neighbors, between the, the people around you, hmm. and that a good built environment, uh, whether it's the size of a kibbutz, which they range from anywhere from 80 people to 2,000 people, uh, to even just a street or a, a neighborhood, hmm. has to really... Um, Accent or what I uh, what I described as the KQ, your kibbutz quotient, the opportunities mm. to have random encounters with either stra- uh, strangers or friends, and just kind of a uh, stop and talk, and those are the things that kind of mm. uh, build community, and and those kind of strengthen community for when you have to make kind of tough decisions or you have to make mm. uh, change. And again, the kibbutz was very very kind of clear about the importance of kind of embedding this into their built environment and maintaining these spaces what sociologist Ray Oldenburg often describes as the third places, Mm -hmm. the places that are not work and not home, but are are kind of more amorphous, open places where you can bump into each other and have a drink or get your hair cut Mm -hmm. or or whatnot and and, uh, feel an opportunity to connect. So the importance to kind of create those places uh, and and kind of uh, save those spaces and preserve those spaces because I really kind of feel uh, that that bill, automobile- culture in particular in which you kind of live in a box and drive mm-hmm. around in mm-hmm. a box into another box it disconnects you from that mm-hmm. experience you don't have those conversations and I, I think we kind of risk some of that with with um, the internet and mm-hmm. smartphones though I'm a little less kind of dystopian about that than, than some people are I think there are kind of connections and an opportunity mm-hmm. for virtual communities yes, where yeah. to get us to reflect around the community also, yeah, I think about the kind of question of scale and and uh, that notion that small is beautiful and, and kind of uh, knowing who your community is. I heard that from a number of uh, kibbutzniks, especially in the urban communes as well, that it was kind of less important what their ideology was, what their vision was, but, but uh, who their neighbours were, who mm-hmm. they were in this project uh, uh, together and that knowing that they uh, care for each other. Uh, and looked out for each other, and that sense of empathy with a larger world uh, came out of that. Having said all that, uh, I think there's a bigger kind of lesson maybe even for kind of Canadians. I mean, I've given a couple of talks about what you can learn about the kibbutz movement. I remember giving one at at UVic, uh, and then at the end of it, when we were going to have like a good discussion, just like we've been having about about built environments, uh, somebody had been passing out kind of Uh, pamphlets and she stood up and said well are you going to talk about how kibbutzes were built in the blood of the Palestinian people of course at that point the whole thing kind of blew up and people Mm -hmm. were shouting out about and and I couldn't talk about the lessons but there was uh, even in that provocation a legitimate point Mm -hmm. to the kibbutz was a settlement project It was also a colonial project As well, and and it was uh, was sold to kibbutzniks as a a land without a people for a people without a land, which was only half true. Mm -hmm. Many of these kibbutzes ultimately uh, displaced uh, Palestinians or were uh, later built on land taken from uh, Palestinians who had fled or were displaced in 1948. And that's something that the kibbutz movement has to kind of reckon with, Mm -hmm. and has tried, or certain communities have tried to, and I think there's something there for kind of Canadians to think about as well. And it kind of forced me to think about that, that we too are settlers here on land that is not truly our own, Mm -hmm. and how do we, what is the responsibility uh, that goes with that when we talk about things like community. You know, what were the communities that were on this place before? and what can we learn from uh, them? and how do we kind of respect that heritage? So I think those would be the the big lessons mm-hmm. that uh, I learned from, yeah, the very kind of fascinating, complex, often contradictory history of the kibbutz movement yet i still find inspiring because these were people who kind of heard this call of utopia and decided to kind of take it from an idea and try and make it a reality and that's always going to be a messy thing but it's it's kind of more interesting than that kind of that traditional road that most of us take
0: Mm -hmm. yes i mean definitely you can hear the the similarities there in that song and dance routine about come to come to this land that no one is on you can and and a lot of the the narratives around they were just repurposing swampland that nobody wanted anyways i mean those same discourses you know were happening uh with settlers in in canada and the united states as well I'm, i'm curious if there's anything within the kibbutz uh history there that you feel deals adequately with their role on the one hand as settlers and then on the other hand as trying to create this utopia that also tries to um, converse and deal with that that status of being settlers that uncomfortable status of well we you know we we kind of came and and planted ourselves on this land and, and displaced some people and there's this whole political history behind that but we also want to have a conversation about that with, you know, with with Arabs, right? So it seems like, if anything, that's something that's still getting sorted out on the ground that we all know is happening at the political level. But I'm curious if there's some, there's some uh, stories coming out of these particular kibbutzes.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a big question. I think that is one of the kind of great failings of the kibbutz movement that mm-hmm. it never really kind of... Uh, reconciled with mm-hmm. with the kind of Palestinian narrative. On on the other hand, I mean they were always and remain one of the strongest progressive forces in the country. So where more interesting things are happening are on these non-kibbutz communities, communities in many ways inspired by the kibbutz, but Mm -hmm. places like Nevi Shalom and Nesemim that have made it their explicit mission to kind of create Mm -hmm. a space for coexistence, create Mm -hmm. a space for dialogue, create a space where you're not just going to talk about these big ideals, but where where, uh, Jewish and Palestinian residents can live together. And I remember um, one of the community organizers in Nevis Shalom saying to me, Well, his concern is that people come here and lots of people will come and see this community of them living together, working together for peace. He said, Well, uh, this isn't an example that can Arabs and, and Jews uh do live together throughout Israel i mean this is is not typical, but just that they can mm-hmm. uh so that notion of hope, but that it's gotta begin. Uh, with almost kind of boots on the ground and that, that a level of integration and and living together, so you talked about these welcoming communities. That is is a beautiful thing because if it doesn't happen, you have like the history mm-hmm. of Israel and Palestine that uh, that gets so divided and gets so violent for years and years and years because these two peoples are are. Uh, kept so separated and locked in their own narratives as well uh, that only once they can kind of come together and have that fear diminish and and kind of realize mm-hmm. that they have many of the same values and they, they they're searching for kind of community and and family and and uh, the good life uh both um uh, that they will learn to kind of uh, lose that distrust and, and, mm-hmm. and violence, but there's at the same time,
0: there's a lot of kind of fundamentalism mm-hmm. uh, on, mm-hmm. on both sides
1: and resistance to that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that there's, uh, there's lots to be learned from, from all of this. And, um, you know, I, I, I've really enjoyed this, this talk. I think it's been, been really great. And, uh, you know, I can see that, uh, that I'm gonna to have to read your book, uh <laughs> when it gets released.
1: Um, Coming out September with ECW Press.
0: There you go. Plug it. Um and uh definitely all of this uh all of this information that we've talked about today will be in the show notes um for the podcast and, and so we'll have some links in there to to some of the the places that we talked about and and some of the figures and and uh maybe even a little bit more backstory as well in terms of places that you want to look if you want to learn more and of course uh a link to uh to the book chasing utopia by uh, david leach so thank you so much uh for partaking in this interview and uh and yeah i look forward to reading your stuff
1: thank you it's been a pleasure to talk to you about it
0: David Leech is an Associate Professor of Creative Nonfiction the Chair of the Department of Writing at the University of Victoria, British Columbia. His humor articles, profiles, reviews, investigative journalism, columns, memoirs, and travelogues have appeared in national and international publications, including The Globe and Mail, The National Post, Time Canada, Reader's Digest, This Magazine, Canadian Geographic, Today's Parent, and Communities along with Chasing Utopia, the Future of the Kibbutz in a Divided Israel, David has also written Fatal Tide, When the Race of a Lifetime Goes Wrong. You can find the resources mentioned during this episode at togetherworking.com slash the Working Together Podcast, all one word. And if you'd like to receive the weekly Working Together review, where I share interesting finds and actionable insights about teamwork, facilitation skills, social innovation, cooperatives, behavioral economics, strategy, political theory, and a whole bunch of other stuff, you can sign up at togetherworking.com.